So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. And this is the Green Majority, Canada's number one environmental news hour. We've got environmental news. We're on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station, gloriously waterfalling. I, I lost the metaphor mid-metaphor, so Ooh. that's fine. Um, What's your name? David Hostetter. I'm Stephen Ozdetter. I'm Lauren Latour. And unfortunately, this week, we don't actually have much environmental news for you. We just have a lot of what you just heard of just like losing the metaphor halfway through the metaphor. Yeah. If you want environmental news, you can do your own research <laughs> and you can find, you can discover who actually runs this world. Or just tune back in next week. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully we'll be over this existential crisis by then. No, there'll be no more news on this. The news itself is a symptom uh, and a cause of everything that's going wrong. And, uh, sorry. My raspberries are moldy. That's did that. They all looked good at the top and they're, they're rotten inside. Lauren purchased rotten raspberries. Like the news. Oh my God. You think the Washington Post is doing good work until you realize it's owned by Bezos and the whole democracy dies in darkness thing doesn't sound nearly as cool anymore. Democracy was purchased in darkness. <laughs> and, uh, Stefan's going to interview Emma Norton again. Yes. Because they have had a lovely policy success on the East Coast. Uh, well, we're going to start with a brief update about the funding uh, of the Halifax Climate Plan, which is great news. Truly, truly good news. They actually got the funding passed. They'll be fully funded, and they put a levy, a 3% levy on their property taxes to pay for climate funding. Huge success to everyone on Halifax. Big congrats. So we talk about that for a second, and then we dive in mostly to this, this thing called the Recover Initiative, which is basically a very audacious attempt. It's, it's a huge project to retrofit something like 42 to 47 percent of all homes in Nova Scotia, because they're responsible for a huge percentage of emissions, but in a way that allows you to do that without it becoming... Um, a way to do that without displacing the residents while you're doing it and being able to do it in a way that's like done within two weeks. So truly great initiative, uh, but a big audacious goals. So in Halifax now, if you own property, you're paying for the maintenance of your, of your surrounding environment. I mean, there's a 3% levy on the property tax. I don't know whether or not that's all property. If it's maybe just housing, I'm not certain about that part, but... Yes. Because if you got land, that would make sense, you know? Sure. If you own land? If you own land. All right. So we're going to start off with Stefan discussing uh, some ideas he's gleaned from the pioneering sci-fi author Octavia Butler. So as you might have guessed from our opening, this is a bit of an existential crisis episode where... 
we're going to dive into some more general thoughts about the vibes. And honestly, if you listen to the last like four or I five... I just need you to tell me what we're doing here, Stefan. I, I, I am <laughs> I telling you. I need you to tell me what it is we're doing here. I'll tell you. Just okay. give me a second. We'll get there. All right. Um, uh, yeah, if you've listened to the last few episodes, we've sort of continually come back to this point of the ways in which society feels a little stuck right now. And by pure happenstance, I've begun reading The Parable of the Sower, probably later in life than I should have. But I've been on a big Octavia Butler kick in the in, in part because of how much credit Adrian Marie Brown gives her for her thinking uh, in Emergent Strategy, which is a, another book about organizing. And in perhaps the least surprising information I can provide, it is both very good and starter starter starting startingly startingly? Startlingly. That's my word. Starting. Oh my God, I can't say this word. Startlingly. Starting. Startlingly. Startlingly. No, you're saying startlingly. And prescient uh, of the moment we live in. Let's just skip the word altogether. Though, what's hitting me right now isn't so much the ways in which the mid in it, it isn't so much in the ways in which Butler predicted the decay of the United States uh, or the ways in which climate change would exacerbate inequality though honestly both are pretty bang on but rather it has to do with the way that she portrays humanity in the face of this crisis all just sort of watching the world get worse and worse and sort of refusing to give up their slice of comfort to make a bigger change possible. And so instead, they just all slowly live in a slow... So instead, they just live in a slowly shrinking society and world that gets worse and worse until finally it's so weak... It's weak enough to be broken entirely and all together, and it descends into anarchy. And to me, this is exactly what the last 20 years have felt like, or at least especially since the 2007 housing crisis, that we have been simply descending, waiting for things to get so bad that we might have a big shakeup and begin to feel like we can begin to rebuild. Like, I haven't felt like we've been building anything for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, my entire life, really, if I'm being perfectly honest. And I think that... Many of us, I personally would say I did, hoped and maybe even allowed ourselves to believe that the pandemic would be exactly that. That the pandemic would be so bad that we would be like, wow, everything is bad. It is exasperating inequality. We have a moment to respond to this and we can use this moment to build back a society that takes care of people and addresses climate change and ensures that we're better protected for future pandemics and instead what we've pretty much got is gone back to sort of the regular slowly descending life that now just includes a pandemic that we're also ignoring you know we're, we're in the middle of a new pandemic wave right now and it's barely in the news it's barely on people's lips you know you, you can see everyone's lips everywhere because no one's wearing a mask despite the fact that more people are in the hospital now than there were, you know, for the last like few months. It's we're in the middle of this, and yet we've all sort of not like not I shouldn't say we all because it's not everyone, but there has been this manufactured consent in many ways that we are no longer thinking that it is as much of a threat as it was before, despite it being still a huge threat. Just like climate change, just like all these other things, which leads me 
to a further thought, but I want to stop there and for a second and just ask the two of you, maybe starting with you, Lauren, which is like, does this feel true to you? Like, is does that f- feel very depressing, I will fully say. And again, I, I'm not the one to come out here and say that, like, there's no hope whatsoever. But the vibe I feel right now is just that there is not... There's almost no forward momentum that I can really feel, and instead it does feel like we're all just sort of sitting around waiting for something to crack enough that then we have an opportunity to take action and and, and build and move, and it just hasn't shown up, or maybe it did show up and we missed it. It's Yeah. Does that feel true to you? No, it feels totally true. Um, And I feel like there are a lot of things that are contributing to this feeling. Part of it, and, 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 Part of it, I think, is is almost it's just like it's like being in the middle of a hot, stagnant summer. Right? Like I'm not saying this is a cause, but like it is the same feeling as the feeling I'm like currently experiencing physiologically right now. That's just like I'm in a hot, stagnant summer. All I want to do is lay on my couch and scroll Instagram and like drink San Pellegrino. Like I don't want to think about things. I don't want to do things. I just want to chill and try to be as happy as possible in like these fleeting moments of when like I'm exhausted because it's warm and not exhausted because it's cold or like whatever. You know what I mean? No, I think I think those feelings are completely valid and realistic and drawing those connections makes a lot of sense. There's it's almost a bummer to go back because I, I do the same thing that a lot of people do where I subscribe to a whole bunch of really awesome publications, Jacobin, the monitor, Briar patch, all these, all these cool things with amazing articles. And then I get them and then I don't read them. And then I have to sort through these piles of awesome magazines with amazing articles that I didn't read. And it's like, you can see at the beginning of the pandemic, March, 2020, summer, 2020, everybody was putting out these awesome articles and these issues about like this moment that we need to seize and this moment that we need to act on. And it's like, we all kind of tried to do that and then collectively heaved a sigh of exhaustion and let the moment pass us by. And now we have to accept the fact that like, yeah, we, it's, it, it sort of feels like one of those things where we didn't go out with a bang, but with a bit of a sputter instead, because we were all just like too tired and too broke to be able to, to do anything else. Um, and yeah. And now we're left in this moment, this kind of fallow period where like we didn't jump on the pandemic the way we, I, well, we tried. It's just, it, it wasn't enough. So the whole build back better thing didn't really happen. And the pandemic took the wind out of the sails of the youth climate marches. So now you've got a generation of young people who identify as activists, but, but kind of had that that wind taken out of their sails. So we have like an increasingly younger cohort of organizers and activists and people who care about climate change, feeling disempowered and feeling disillusioned with the state of not only the world, but like the climate movement and leftism in general. Um, well, you know, yeah. I mean, I think there's, it almost feels like there was this groundswell of mo- of, of, a, of motion, but the the rest of the infrastructure that makes up our society right now was at, was still strong enough to sort of push it back and you know and so the states end up giving most of its money uh, to as business loans that they then forgave to super rich companies that bought back all their stocks rather than forgiving student debt you know and yet the narrative still is that we gave too much money to people rather than the billions of dollars they gave into things and so it does feel like there was this moment and 
there was a strong push, like, you know, you and I worked on the Just Recovery, you know, work. That was a huge effort. There were so many people involved. It was cross-Canada effort to have this this plan. And then, you know, to see it, the little pieces of it maybe make it into a couple things, but really not picked up by anyone, really not pushed forward by the, the leftist parties that we have in Canada really whatsoever. They sort of, like, ignore it uh, despite, you know, the, the groundswell that it could have brought yeah, it does feel like, you know, maybe if we can come back a second time and bring it back, and I, I have some thoughts on what we should learn, how we should maybe think about it, and what we can pull back uh, from Octavia Butler's thinking to this moment now, but for you first, Dave, do you feel like that is roughly how you are feeling? Well, I would go back to the first thing you said, which was that the society seems stagnant. I don't, I don't think that we really have a society. I don't feel as though we have a society. I think Margaret Thatcher succeeded and conv- and made it so that there is no society. And uh, ever since, we've had this shell of a, of a government and a system that tells us that there's a society, but there isn't, which is why after a pandemic, when it seems like things are going to change, we so easily slip back into the same patterns because we don't know what it would mean to live as a society through such crises and to act and to actually embrace such crises in the way that would re- that that would become transformative and so and so i don't think people i don't think everyone necessarily feels collectively like everything's getting worse for everyone uh i feel like people see things getting better for some people and those are the models that the system then throws at us to convince us that we can have that too when in fact we really can't we have a pseudo society in which we're just trying to look out for ourselves and we don't really know how even to reach out for each other because we're being convinced constantly by those with advertising political power that we can have something that we can't and never could. Part of the reason that I have maybe been feeling this same um, sense of societal stagnancy, but I'm not feeling at least in right now, this present moment, the same feeling of despair that I'm hearing is that because I was lucky enough to get to spend a week with some really fantastic colleagues who are sort of doing that dreaming about these alternative societal structures and these alternative systems we can put in place and these alternative ways of working with each other. I think sometimes, at least right now, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, would love to hear from listeners or, or pals or friends or even from yourselves. Like, I do think sometimes as white folks in the environmental movement um, and as white folks in general, it's like we feel this sense of despair because we're like, nobody's building community. Nobody's building these alternative ways of being. And it's like, people are, we're just not seeing it because we tend to be exposed to people that look like us and think like us and live like us. And it's not white folks who are building those systems. It's not white folks who are, who are building those alternatives. Maybe that's part of it. No. And that's good. And that's good. I just mean, I just mean like in terms of a general outlook, right. In terms of generally. Yeah. The general hegemonic state of affairs. Yeah. And I do think that there, when you look out into the world, the places where you'd get some hope, you know, are places like Central America, where you've seen a series of socialist and more leftist victories that have done some really incredible shifts and work. Really recently, too. Exactly. In the last little bit. Yeah. 
my last like couple months, you know, some significant victories there in a place that had been so totally destroyed by basically right wing dictators for the last like, you know, 20, 30 years. And so it's not a, it's of course not hegemonic. And I do think part of it also has to do with the other ways in which we find like Canada and the States are quite stagnant. I was listening to a podcast from Ezra Klein, you know, talk about like sort of like the most middle of the road kind of individual you could sort of imagine. But his point and one thing he was thinking about and talking about was actually just this really big difficulty that people are facing around how hard it is to build stuff in right now. Like how much that, say, the NIMBY culture and how much that these different policies that were put in place originally to protect the environment or protect land have become weaponized so that like you can't build a train in America without opening yourself up to being sued by anyone who could be possibly impacted by that train. And so it takes a ton of time to make sure your train is bulletproof so that no one can sue you because, which then means that you spend 10, 20, 30 more years you would need to, to build any of this infrastructure. And so I do think that we're, part of the stagnation we also feel is that we're also trapping ourselves, you know, in the ways that like we hate density and yet also hate sprawl. Well, you can't hate both of those things. You are either trading density for sprawl or sprawl for density. And there's no world where you don't get both or you don't get one of those two things because our population continues to increase. I can pivot a bit. There was something that David said before we turned our mics or before we turn the recording system on. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot the last, I don't know, probably month, few weeks at least. Um, and it's that when we do talk about in movement spaces where we're talking about like building power or we're working on our campaigns, we're working on our strategy, we're working on our plans for the future, at least in, I'm, I'm pretty in my nine to five job, I'm pretty locked into ENGO or like environmental non non-government organization world. So that definitely is, it's like some people might not even consider that part of the movement because of the work that I do. I do consider it to be part of, part of a broader movement, though it is only one, one facet. Basically, sorry, what I'm trying to say is the point I'm trying to make is that like when we talk about building power, we're oftentimes only talking about building power in as much as we'd like, we want to build power to influence people who hold power um, and like can can sort of like incrementally move the dial on like the status quo meter. You know what I mean? It's like, we're ultimately only ever appealing to um, a colonial government and a colonial system of politics. It's constantly just like what, what our asks amount to is like begging them to take our lives seriously and begging them to make the changes that we're hoping they will make to, to save ourselves. And we're oftentimes not talking about what it means to build really generative, I hate using the term grassroots because it's become such a buzzword, but like grassroots community-based power to sort of like build those alternative systems of being and those different ways of knowing and operating within the world. And that's a question I've sort of come back to a lot. And I, and I, and it's a question that I've been posing to a lot of people and I still haven't, not that nobody's given me a good answer, but I haven't been able to come up with a good alternative in my mind. And I think it's because I am just so locked into this colonial paradigm that I've grown up within and that everything I've ever read or experienced or listened to has, has been within this bubble whereby power only really does look like this one sort of colonial 
a hierarchical pyramid. And I know that alternative ways of being exist. I just don't know really and truly how that how how to bring them about and how we can build power to to make them happen. Um, and like so, I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I was going to say that each each person having grown up in this country feels that they need to make it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, and so it's so difficult to trust other people in terms of material uh, conditions mm-hmm. because we're, because the only way we're taught to survive is through a family dynamic, which is based upon a certain degree of monetary income, personal monetary income, nothing to do with mm-hmm. sharing, nothing to do with, um, helping each, like having a collective wealth at all. Yeah. Yeah. Having a collective wealth and having a collective agency over that wealth and and how we direct those resources and and what we do with them. So that's a sort of question I've been mulling around. And then the other question I've been sort of mulling around is like, and I don't know, this is maybe a whole, this is a question for a whole other day, but like the other one that's been plaguing me recently, again, within sort of like a movement dynamic standpoint is something was said to me recently by like a fellow like organizer activist. um, And they kind of, they made the point that one of the reasons that we haven't been winning quote unquote as a movement is because um, we don't, <laughs> we've sort of forgotten how to threaten uh, power the way we used to. Like, I know we all, we all glorify the revolutions of yore, like the French revolution or whatever. And the reason the French revolution won is because they like quite literally enacted serious violence on people. And that was the threat, the threat of that they were able to use to make change was, was the threat of death and violence. I'm not saying we need to threaten people with death, but we do need to figure out how to like really sit in the power that we do have. And sometimes that's scary power. Um, and sometimes it means we need to be making threats and we need to be engaging in more civil disobedience. We need to be engaging in more direct action. Um, and I think we've kind of forgotten how to do that. Um, or at least, it's not that we've forgotten how to do it. We remember how to do it, but the only way we remember how to do it is a way is in a way that would sort of open the floodgates to a type of violence that I'm disinterested in. And what I mean by that is like, I know in the last maybe like 10 plus years that I've been involved in organizing within sort of like the climate movement and so-called Canada, I did see a pivot away from conversations about um, sort of typical direct action in a way that really only empowered angry white guys being angry. Like the kind of, one of the reasons we, we were so disdainful of like extinction rebellion for the longest time is because it did just sort of feel like a bunch of angry white men who wanted to yell in the street and mess stuff up. Um, and that was that form of activism. And it's like, how do we, how do we reintroduce direct action and civil disobedience into our climate and our organizing spaces in a way that just doesn't invite like a black block back into the fray. You know what I mean? Am am I making sense? And that's sort of a question I've been mulling over a lot because I think we do need to remember how to threaten again. And we do need to remember how to sit and wield that power. Um, But how do we do that in a way that just doesn't open up our, our, our own friends and allies to, to sort of like lateral violence and harm? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting hearing what, uh, when we interviewed Stu Basden, you know, who's one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, and 
sort of his experience of how they started and you know what they started with and their goal at the beginning you know from the UK version was about having street festivals and using street festivals and joy and fun as a way to you know disrupt and then as they were met by increasing state uh, violence it became a much more much it, it, it really shifted towards a much more elite uh, you had to be like, you know, you had to build really fast and then basically you were just immediately going to get arrested. And so it you lost a whole number of people who would be a subject to these lateral violences because they couldn't risk how immediately dangerous it would be. And their actual ability to, to actually disrupt was significantly de- decreased as well because of the, the response. And if you go back to even right before the pandemic, the unbelievably military response that came during when people started blocking when indigenous the the indigenous uprising to block railroads in support of Wet'suwet'en you know that was one of the biggest stories they successfully really shifted the narrative like they successfully got you know the attention of the whole country in for an extended period of time in these conversations by doing this direct action that was really quite significant and I do think that there's sort of like, for me, there's sort of two sides. There's that type of like direct action that sort of really pushes for for bigger change. And I think that that kind of thing is what will ultimately, I you know, win change at the higher levels and ultimately win change in from, you know, from these governments. Like you have to find ways to but then you still also have the, the men. I'm, I'm going to get too far into this. And, and if I can, it's it's led by communities of color and indigenous communities that really are, like you said, kind of have that vision and are pushing for those transformative systems. So it's it's a transformative version of direct action pushing for transformative systems as opposed to just like angry white people lighting a car on fire. Yeah. Right. I was going to say um, people already not like people, people already alien to our colonial genocidal system right they know how to fight for their lives whereas whereas us born born within for and by that system it seems like all we know how to do is fight for personal gain in a sense within the system right because that's what we've been taught to glorify and so the and that's why i think the other side of this and the or the other from that perspective to the other thing i think we have to be focusing on just so i can bring it all the way back to octavia butler and, and how we start this conversation is sort of in the her vision of what she sees as necessary to, you know, to bring it forward from and in the ways you could sort of what learnings we could pull from, you know, some of these writings, you know, is this one of focusing specifically on creating very strong and resilient communities and having those communities be adaptable to changes and be able to be opportunistic at the times that they can be opportunistic while also knowing while also taking care of each other and deep care of each other in the in the times when they're you know when times when they have to protect themselves and, and, and care all while really focusing on the ways that you can sort of control change or that you can you can shape change uh the the line that she keeps coming back to in the thing is that God is change, shape God is two lines that they keep back to in the book. And there's something there, I think about one of the, like, if you're not a, if you're not a direct action person, if you're not a person who really wants to see themselves in that way, the other way is I think being a deep, deep community person and being the person who's able to connect with other people and build bridges and, 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 while living in a world that does deconstruct the sort of top-down 
uh, structure right now. You know, like mutual. That's why mutual aid was such an exciting thing during during COVID was because it it undid that sort of capitalist mindset that Dave sort of referenced earlier. Yeah, and and like that though, very exciting work and very meaningful and very fulfilling is also like deeply unglamorous, right? Because it's like it's 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 providing for each other in a in a in a community way, but like in like a, in like a deeply personal kind of like it's it's cooking, it's cleaning, it's doing a lot of work that for a long time has been really um, uh, demoted within within our systems. Um, yeah, and if you do have any thoughts on any of this, send them our way. I would love to have if people do have thoughts and you want to send us an email or tweet at us. I know I say this a lot and don't get a lot of tweets, but you can email us. Get some emails. Um, can I just mention? Yeah, of course. Just in terms of Stefan's idea of deep community, I I wonder how it can happen in a uh, place where housing is fully commodified, because because that makes everybody they can't stay in the same place, right? And if you can't guarantee that you can actually stay in the same physical location for any meaning appreciable amount of time, it's I don't I don't understand how you could even build what could be considered a community if nobody knows who's going to be where, what they're going to be charged, right? Everything is thrown off chaotically by the by that. And I think that's why co-housing and co-ops and these other things have to be are such a huge part of this, right? Like you have to you're very right. Like and it's why the displacement of revitalization is obviously so much more destructive. And also why that's an amazing segue into the interview with Emma, why being able to provide these retrofits without uh, forcing people out of their homes ends up being so important because those communities have to exist and they're how they survive. And I think it's also, I think some of it comes down to, there's a really great book that came out that I know a whack of people read during the pandemic, um, specifically kind of like breaking down mutual aid. Um, and it's by Dean Shepard. And one of the things that Dean Shepard talks about within the book is like this idea that like mutual aid is yes, it's, it's those, it's those very practical, um, sort of like ways that we care for and provide for each other, but it also has to be coupled with um, like political action and political transformation um, in a way that, that maybe hasn't, it hasn't always existed. And it has to be that like those two things have to happen in tandem because like you said, like we have to be, we have to be creating these spaces and in order to create those spaces, we have to be doing that practically and we have to be like politically opening up room for, for, for those spaces to become more widespread and more, um, yeah, more widespread because it's one thing to like buy a plot of land and live on it with a bunch of your pals and kind of a commune style system. And yeah, that's really fantastic for you and your friends. And it's going to feel really meaningful and it is going to be really meaningful. And it is sort of a version of transformation in your small corner of the world. But in order to make that a more widespread um, possibility for people, you're also going to have to change things at the political level as well. All right. And now we're going to go perhaps to some music, perhaps directly to Seven's interview. All right, we'll, we'll listen to a rhythm, a couple rhythms for a little while. And then Seven's going to interview Emma Norton. What's her position? She's the operations director at Recover Initiative. Recover Initiative? Yeah. All right.
And I am here with Emma Norton, the operations director of the Recover Initiative. And those of you who listen to the show regularly might remember we last spoke with Emma in regards to the Halifax Climate Plan, which is now passed. So we'll briefly touch on that, but then most of this is about the Recover Initiative. But thanks so much for being here, Emma. My pleasure. Great to chat with you again. Yes, thanks for being back. And so as a follow-up to our last conversation, the Halifax Climate Plan has now been passed. And so I would just be curious to hear what's your read on how that went and what the big work is that comes up next. So I'm happy to say it's actually been two years since the climate plan passed. And what we were most recently talking about was making sure that the plan was truly funded. So what had happened is late last year, this news story broke that the Halifax Council was looking at adding a climate tax, a climate levy to its property tax. And the backlash, as you can imagine, was enormous. Even though Atlantic Canada is amongst, our population is amongst the top believers in climate change, the top believers in the need for us to take immediate action, there's not a lot of public support for increasing taxes yet. So a few folks from the community got together and said, well, we can't let this news story sink our ship think the climate plan ship before it gets to the ocean. So we worked together to try to make sure that even if the the climate levy on the property tax did not pass, there was at least a lot of support for the plan to be fully funded. So this is kind of based on this idea that we need to spend what it takes to the climate crisis, right? We're talking about our existence here and the future of the world and society as we know it. So what ended up happening is we ended up trying to talk to as many counselors as possible, especially the counselors that we thought were maybe in the middle. They were undecided about whether or not to support fully funding the climate plan. And we said to them, this is really important. Like you have a chance to be leaders. When you think about how this is an investment in our future, this is a really good decision to make. So our campaign was really to fully fund Halifax. But the councillors ended up voting to add a climate levy to the property tax. So it's a 3% increase. And actually, we're pretty pleased with it. Like, I would really like us to be thinking about what are, whether that's a progressive tax and ways that we can make sure that doesn't harm the most vulnerable. However, the fact that Halifax decided we are willing to increase our taxes to help pay for climate action, that is a win. And there are, there are many protections in place for folks who would struggle with that increase. So it, it is nuanced, but what was really important is that Halifax committed to spending what it takes to tackle climate change. Right. And thank you for that correction. For me, the idea of funding it, again, I think I mentioned this last time we talked, was in Toronto, we've had a great plan, but also have refused to fund it. And so fully funding it is for me the moment it actually exists, right? Like you have a great plan, but if you don't fund it, it doesn't exist. So thank you for the clarification and also for the fact that you actually seem to have a, a plan forward. And your point is well taken in regards to how we can try to focus on ensuring that we're not putting an increased burden on those you know who, who haven't caused the problem in a way to make it a more progressive taxation. But Kudos to y'all for getting the funding that you that you did. Thanks. Yeah, I'm I'm really proud of it as us. I think 
I wish we'd had more of an ability to celebrate. We had a bit of a Zoom party because it was kind of peak Omicron, and we didn't end up getting together. But I, maybe you're reminding me that it might be worth getting a cake and getting this all together now anyway, even though it was months ago, because we need to be able to celebrate some wins these days. Oh, yeah, for sure. And anyone, any opportunity for cake, I feel like, is a good one. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But speaking for about opportunities for cake, the deeper dive you want to do with this interview is about this recover initiative. And I, I will admit, I didn't know about it until it was brought to me. And then I myself dug into it. It sounds fascinating. And so can you tell <laughs> us more what it is, what it is and what you aim to do? Yeah, so the Recover Initiative is trying to develop a deep retrofit solution for buildings that can be scalable at the speed required by the climate crisis. So we know that buildings play a huge role in our carbon footprint. And in Canada, just about one-fifth of our emissions come from buildings in Nova Scotia, where I live, in Mi'kma'ki, that's almost 50% of our carbon emissions. For, I've heard recently between either 42 or 47%. I don't know of any other province in the country where the where buildings contribute that high a percentage of carbon emissions to the carbon emission pie of the province. So I first heard about this. Met, so we're, we're actually trying to incorporate this methodology or adopt this methodology that's been used in Europe. And in Europe, they call it energy sprung, developed in the Netherlands. And it comes from this problem that we face. And like, even if we're trying to get to net zero, so whether you're talking about net zero for 2050, or if you're talking zero carbon for 2030, like whatever your goals are, we need to reduce the carbon emissions of our building stock. And even if we build every building to be zero carbon starting today, even by 2050, like about 50 to 75% of the buildings that exist today are still going to be standing. So what are we going to do to make those buildings zero carbon? And traditional efficiency programs, which have taken off across this country, and Nova Scotia is a particular leader in efficiency programs because of Efficiency One or Efficiency Nova Scotia, they were really exciting when, you know, we're going to help you replace place your light bulbs, we're going to help you insulate your attic, and replace your windows, but those are just incremental retrofits. It's like when we talk about the changes that are required, we need to be aiming for much, much bigger savings. And to get to the kind of savings that are required, like 50% or more, like we're trying to bring these buildings to zero carbon or net zero, that kind of retrofit or renovation is so complicated and invasive and we're facing a housing crisis across this country we can't go retrofitting a bunch of buildings and displacing tenants and occupants and the materials that we normally use in those retrofits to achieve that level of savings are super high carbon so if we decide okay we're going to go and insulate every building across this country and we decide to use foam we're shooting ourselves in the foot because of the embodied carbon in that material just exceeds our carbon budget so quickly. So what we're looking at doing is bringing this energy sprung method from the Netherlands, what's actually across Europe now, and it's some, in other, some, some other places across Canada and North America even, and implementing it here because what it does is it, it addresses this issue of displacement. So people do not need to leave the building. 
it's a lot more systematized and scalable and it takes a lot less time. So they've managed to bring buildings to net zero in a matter of days. So they it used to take a few two months to retrofit those buildings and the people were a lot were able to stay in it during the retrofit. But now it can take just one to fourteen days and they reduce the cost by half. And that's because they used a bit of a modular panelized technology. So imagine taking a square box apartment building and just building a whole new wall to go around the entire thing, giving it a new whole new wall, whole new roof, and then adding a new mechanical system. And so what we've been trying to do is figure out how that methodology can work here in Canada and how we can reduce the carbon impact of the materials used as much as possible. This is one of those things when you begin to read about it, you're like, wow, that seems incredible. Because, you know, I work in some very old buildings and we are beginning to imagine and examine what it would look like to bring them to entry standards. And so often the answer ends up being something like, it's going to be very expensive and wickedly disruptive. Like, you're just yeah. going to have to not be in the space for six months. And you're like, well, we can't really do that. So how do we manage this? And that's like, it's such a big challenge that that this method seems to undertake in such an interesting way. Yeah. And I do want to give the caveat that this is not necessarily going to work in all buildings, but there are definitely certain archetypes that's going to work really well for it. It's been extremely helpful in townhouses and we're looking at rolling it out in low-rise multi-unit residential, so low-rise apartment buildings, because there's a lot of just square boxes pretty simple form that could quite easily be wrapped and insulated and added, have some solar panels and new heating system and be net zero, at least according to our studies. And it is, it's just like, you know, we're talking to housing providers about whether or not they want to pursue a partnership with us and use Recover. And it is so important to everyone right now that we not displace people. And so whether you're working in the building or living in it, it's, it's just, Whatever, it, it, it comes back to this whole idea of climate justice, right? Like the, our solutions do need to be people-focused and people-centered so that we're not making people's lives harder. Yeah, exactly. And especially because of how big this problem is, right? So you got to do a bit, but I'm curious if you can just dive back into those numbers of how big this problem, like how many houses would need to get retrofitted? So big. So I was saying, you know, in Nova Scotia, 42 to 47% of our emissions come from our buildings. And that's because in Nova Scotia, we have an extremely dirty electricity grid and we use oil to heat our homes. So in Nova Scotia in particular, it's very bad and even worse in Halifax where two thirds of the emissions come from buildings. And a lot of cities and communities are going to deal with that same level of like same impact of their buildings on their, on their carbon emissions. But so last week, there was a, a national retrofit conference held. I was unfortunately unable to go, but my colleague, Lori Rand, was able to go. And according to the number crunching that was done, they estimate that starting last year, we would have to, estim- we would have to retrofit 600,000 buildings a year in order to achieve our climate goals. I have heard another, which I, I'm not sure how this compares, I've also heard someone else say that someone that works in this industry say that we need to retrofit 
two homes for every one new construction. So this is a huge, huge economic job industry opportunity, but it's also just a massive project, which just yet, yet again points at the need for us to think about this as the emergency that it is and really take a warlike military approach in terms of making sure that we put all the resources necessary into it. Because retrofits aren't just a climate solution, right? Like climate is definitely the impetus, but they help increase the affordability of energy. They improve the comfort of homes. And if people are more comfortable in their homes and buildings, they're going to have higher well-being. They reduce the maintenance, like if they're done well, they reduce the maintenance need for that building. They help our buildings last longer. And they also were, as you so well know, you and the folks who listen to your show, as you know, like we have locked into a certain amount of climate change. And as we experience more heat domes and more power outages due to inclement weather, it's with super high performing homes, we're going to be able to actually save lives because they won't be as susceptible to the fluctuating temperatures. They'll be stay cooler during heat domes. They'll stay warmer during the winter. So it's also an adaptation measure that we need to be implementing as soon as possible. Thinking a lot about what this summer is going to be like for people across Canada. Yeah, for sure. And we're seeing sort of pushes back against that in so many places. You know, Here in Toronto, there's pushes to literally evict people who are trying to just use their ACs because they have to, because it's so hot in, the, in their places. And it's like, you, if you're evicting people for having to cool their place, we are in a dark time. And oh, no, I have it's, not it's, heard about that. That's awful. It's, it's very bad. But maybe we can get a sense of this for like one house. I feel like it might help people imagine like, I'm a person living in Nova Scotia. I have a house that works for this process. How would it happen for me? I would, I would call you up and I would get this process done. Can you, can you sort of walk us through the steps? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of you have you live in an apartment building because that's really where we're focusing right now. Because we're trying to systematize and automate it so that we can scale up quickly, we're trying to work with simple forms. There are a few salt box homes in Nova Scotia, I'll admit, that are just squares or cubes. Okay, but you, you have a, an apartment building and you or your landlord or... I don't know, maybe you live in a co-op, you approach to recover and you say, we want to, we want you to do a deep retrofit. So what we would do is we, the first thing is we would scan the building using the LIDAR scanning technology. So that actually gives us some really incredibly, well, fairly precise drawings of just three millimeters precision on the computer of the building. Like it looks like a photograph. And that allows for us to then know how big do these panels need to be. So we're going to take that picture and we're going to design panels that can be stuck to the outside of the building based on that photo. And the panels are going to include like timber frame. They're going to include your insulation. They're going to include vapor barrier, air barrier, cutouts for windows you're going to get all new windows and doors so we're going to build all those panels off-site so that's a plus you don't need to be around for us building them we're not going to be impacted by the weather because hopefully we'll be doing it inside of a shelter somewhere and then once they're finished being built we're going to take them to site and we're going to plunk them on 
And I've heard some people say the very technical term of there's a squishy side and there's a cladding side, the squishy side in towards the building. So our once we have the new panels on, we're going to pop out the old windows and doors. We're going to give you new windows and doors. And now you're going to have a nice, deep window ledge that so many super high-performing homeowners love. And also your building's going to be a lot more comfortable in terms of drafts. But we need to give you a new ventilation system because it's going to be a lot more airtight than it was before. And that's going to improve the air quality in your building. We know that super efficient homes with mechanical ventilation systems actually have much better air quality than those that, in quotes, breathe through the walls. And you're going to get a new heating system. So we focus on switching all of our buildings off of fossil fuels and on into electrical. So normally it'd be some kind of heat pump. So far we've looked at mini splits and ducted, but we do need to take it. Every, every building will be a little bit different at this point. And then if possible, we add solar panels to that and bring you all the way to net zero. So the few buildings that we've looked at already and done studies on, we've reduced energy by between 80 and 90%. And our most recent model showed that we were reducing the carbon emissions by 97%. And you just don't get that kind of savings right now using conventional methods without it being extremely expensive and extremely disruptive. I'd say also the panels that I talked about attaching to the walls, those we do our very best to make sure that we're using local materials and materials that are low carbon. So I think I said timber frame, and that wasn't accurate, but wood frame, wood instead of steel, we try not to use concrete, and we try to use, we've always used blown-in cellulose, which is a kind of consumer waste product made from recycled materials, recycled fibers, and you mix it with borax. It's not very combustible once it's well-packed, once it's got borax in it. And got an extremely, extremely low embodied carbon. Amazing. That sounds great. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, how do, would we fund this? So good question. We're trying to figure that out. <laughs> I do think that this needs to be a public service. Like this is all in the name of the public good. It's a climate action. I would love to see this become a government program. But we don't know where the where the government's going. We don't know what kind of politics we're going to have in a few years. So we need to find a way of rolling it out at scale. In the Netherlands, they actually produce a new their own financing system for this, and it's a bit easier in the Netherlands because they have a lot more social housing, and the electricity is much more expensive. So the payback would happen a lot sooner and the social housing a lot like most of energy sprung started in social housing so that meant that the housing provider instead of giving their money to the electricity or the hydro company or the whoever they're paying their energy bills to that money would then be diverted to go towards paying the energy sprung as far as i understand and we are engaging with various folks who are much smarter than me on financing and economics, figure out how are we going to finance this and fund it here in, in Canada or in Nova Scotia. And 
it works extremely well for folks who are housing providers because it's an investment that the payback might be 15 to 20 years if you're looking at simple payback, but there's a lot of other paybacks associated with it in terms of having happier tenants, but also reducing maintenance. It keeps the building in better shape for longer. We have this analysis done by CIFAR Engineering, or CIFAR Analytics, excuse me. And this analysis is called the total cost of building ownership. And what he does is he looks at what does it cost to run this building? Like, what are all the costs that go into running in a building? It's like, you've got your operations, and that means like electricity, water. We have mortgages. We've got maintenance. So he takes every heat pump and he says, this will need to be exchanged in 15 years. How much is that going to cost? And he compares the cost of doing a deep retrofit to the cost of not touching the building to the cost of doing an incremental retrofit. And every time the study comes back saying it's much more cost effective and greatly reduces the cost of owning this building if you do the deep retrofit today versus doing an incremental retrofit or not touching it at all because of the total cost of ownership. So there is definitely a financial case to be made. Just that how many of the programs that exist right now want 10-year payback, five-year payback, but we need to be thinking long game here. And more and more programs are being given the 15, 20-year payback parameters, and that's going to make projects like this a lot more feasible. At the moment, with Recover, we're still in our innovation pilot stage, so the costs are just pretty high, and we need a lot of support from investors or government funding or community philanthropists, community groups, to really be able to prove our technology. And we need to find some projects where we can build economies of scale because what really helps to bring the cost down is aggregation. And we're talking to some folks about it, but we need to, and I know also the federal government is thinking about it with some of the funding that was announced in the emissions reductions plan, but we'll need even more than what's listed in there for making sure the entire country gets these retrofits. Super cool. Well, that segues perfectly to my last question, which is how can folks learn more and get involved and support the work? Well, we have a website, recoverinitiative.ca. We have a very inactive, but hopefully we'll soon be active again, social media on Facebook and Instagram. Feel free to reach out to me, Emma, at recoverinitiative.ca. I would love to chat with anyone about this program and how they might want to get involved or if they know a someone or a few buildings or one building that they think would be a good candidate. You know, I should say when I first heard about this, about the energy sprung technology as someone who, I worked in energy efficiency for seven years, like promoting energy efficiency programs at a nonprofit called Ecology Action Center. And the day that I heard about energy sprung, I literally cried tears. I was like, this is it. This is what we need to do. <laughs> and I'm so glad to be able to do this for a job now and also talk to other people about it. So I would just be so pleased to hear from anyone. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Emma Norton, the Operations Director for the Recover Initiative. Super appreciate having you on and, and letting us know about this, this fantastic initiative. Yeah, and thanks so much. Thanks so much, Stefan. Have a great day. <laughs>